You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Let's pray together. Our Lord, your words pierce us. Your word is a light that shines into uh, the hiddenness of our lives, the things that we want to keep hidden. And in your love, you expose them and draw them out so that uh, even things like anger, that you might heal them in us. We ask that you would use your word um, as medicine, uh, like a physician, that you would do surgery on us. Lead us also to the good news of the gospel as we study your word now. And so we ask for your Holy Spirit to be our teacher. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, so we are looking this morning at uh, the first of, uh, we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount actually over a period of, of uh, about four months, uh, probably Jesus' most famous teaching. And uh, these uh, uh, were in, in the first chapter, chapter five uh, of uh, chapters five, six, and seven. And in chapter five, uh, Jesus gives uh, six commands that he begins with that statement where he says, you know, you have heard it said of old, but I say to you, this kind of authoritative statement. And in this first of these six commands, the first one, Jesus' first priority, the thing that he wants to um, uh, get to with his disciples first and get to with us is the issue of anger. And, uh, you know, one of the things you'll notice that Jesus begins this command uh, by saying that if anyone is angry with a brother... Which means that, um, and by a brother, he's probably meaning a fellow Christian. He means if you're angry with someone here. And uh, what that means is that what he has in mind, what he's painting for us is a picture of a community. What, you know, not just, you know, Nate's personal uh, life of anger, but our life together in community. And the reason that's important is because um, our most destructive and acute anger that we experience is with those that we love the most, with those that are closest to us. And um, I know that for me, uh, you know, with the vast majority of people, I'm a fairly mild, uh, you know, approachable kind of person. And yet, certainly, it's uh, with my family. Uh, the anger is uh, where it pops up its ugly head. With my, my family, I love ferociously, passionately, I love my family. And um, it is in those dear relationships, the people that are near to us, that we are intimate with, that anger shows itself. And now I don't tell you that because I want my sermon to be a time of my confession to you. I confess 
my anger. I have brothers in, uh, that I uh, confess my anger to. And, um, and, and I also, do, I, I don't tell you that so that you can say, oh, well, I don't have to worry too much about my anger. My, my pastor's got an anger problem too. So, uh, so maybe my anger's not too bad. Wrong. <laughs> That's not the purpose. The purpose is that Jesus' first command is, uh, it's like a knife that's coming to the core, exposing the core of what is probably one of the biggest problems in our relationships, in our workplaces, in our families, in churches, which tears apart churches. He knows that this is the biggest issue that he needs to address with his disciples is what do you do with anger? And the fact that he does that, actually there's a lot of hope in that. There's a lot of hope that he addresses that because what that means is that it's possible that we could be healed of our anger that we could be healed of it. It doesn't have to be that way. His vision for what it, it, life is one of his disciples is that it doesn't have to be defined by anger. And, um, but if we are going to be healed of our anger, he says that we first need to look at it. We need to look carefully at it. And so Jesus is going to give us a profound look at anger in these verses and show us what it is and uh, he's going to give us a mirror to look at ourselves that might be frightening to you. It's, it's been a little bit frightening for me this past week, um, but he's, he's a good savior. He's gracious. He loves us and it's in love that he wants to expose us and uh, show what's really in our hearts. So this, as we look at this passage, we're going to look at three things together. The reality of anger. What it is. Why does Jesus have such a problem with it? The reality of anger. Second, the reason for anger. Why do we get angry? What, what is causing us? What's the under, underlying issue that causes that to be such a problem in our families, and our relationships, and, uh, and in churches? And third, he's going to lead us to the remedy for anger. The reality, the reason, and the remedy. And, uh, um, and through these truths, uh, Jesus can lead us to a life that is free from anger destroying our families and our relationships in our church. So first thing we're going to be looking at is the reality of anger. And I think Jesus um, observes three things about what anger is. And the first is this is probably the most kind of um, shocking. You know, Jesus says shocking things often. And the, the first thing is that anger... The anger that lives in all of us, that all of us face is a reality for all of us. He says anger is murderous. Murderous. These kind of shocking words from verse 21. You have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So he's saying the same kind of uh, consequence, the same uh, level of offense that murder is, anger is. So, you know, that, uh, that Jesus says that anger and murder are actually made of the same fabric. Um, they're the same root, that anger is the kernel, that it's the seed. You know, all of the oak tree is in the, the acorn. And so anger is the acorn, and, and when it's full grown, it, it turn, it, that's where it's aiming towards, that's where it's going towards is murder. And you might think that, um, you know, Jesus' words here are... It's hyperbole, you know, he's kind of overstating things, so we'll really get the point. But, you know, I, I've, I've shared with many of you that uh, when I was a teenager, I, uh, I got sent away to a, a boys' school for about a year and a half, a behavioral modification program for kids that were on drugs and dropping out of school and in trouble. And in this school, I, that I lived there for a year and a half. Their main kind of tool for getting your life together is they had these seminars that you'd go through. 
And in the seminar, you know, you find your magical child and, you know, they had all these uh, visualizations and processes you went through. Some of them are actually quite profound. And one of them was uh, a visualization we did where we were in a big room about the size of this, this sanctuary. We're all lying down. We're scattered, about 50 kids lying down. And we close our eyes and the facilitator starts telling this story about how we're, you know, imagine that you're on this cruise. You, you went to the mall and you, uh, you filled out one of those things for a free cruise and you won. And it turns out you're going on this cruise and you can invite all your family, all, all, everyone that you love. And, uh, and he takes you through this visualization. You're on this cruise, and everything's going well. You're, everyone you love is there, and you're, everything's feeling so happy. And, and, and he takes you through this three-day um, visualization. And at the end of the, every day, he says, and then you go into your cabin, and you fall down, and you have a deep, deep sleep. And then the second day, and you have a deep, deep sleep. And then the third day, you go into a deep, deep sleep, and you know, you're getting very comfortable. You're lying there visualizing all this. And while he's doing that, all the kind of staff people from the seminar go and they scatter around the, uh, the room with pots and pans. And all of a sudden on the third day, he screams out, shipwreck! And they start smashing these pans together. And everyone stands up. He said, everyone get in a circle. There's a, the, uh, the ship's going down. And uh, there's only one lifeboat and only three people get to go onto it. And so what you have to do is you have to go around to everyone in the room and you have to give them a vote, a live vote or a die vote. And so you go around, and you, you only have three live votes. And so you start going around, and you start, you die in people, right? You die. <laughs> you die. And while you're you dying, they have someone talking in your ear. And they say, and right when you say you die, they say, that's what you said to your mom. When you cut her down, when you, uh, when you called her those names, when you ran out of the house, when you say, I don't care about you. When you cut her down with your words, what you were saying were you die. And you go around to each person, and, you know, about four people in, I'm just sobbing, snots coming out of my ears, and I'm screaming, you die at people. <laughs> I did, I, you died everyone, actually, so and, uh, no one got on the lifeboat. And, but it was a tremendously profound experience of realizing that here, this is even in a non-Christian setting, that when you are deeply angry, when you cut into people, when you show contempt to people, what you are pronouncing on them is you die. The world is better without you piercing statement and that what Jesus is trying to do here is awaken us to the severity of what anger does and how destructive it is and uh, which means um, that anger the way that Jesus describes it here is murderous but um, but it's murderous in a very subtle way right it's you're not actually physically hurting someone Um, and what that also, so what that also tells us is that anger is not just murderous, but anger is also dismissive. Anger has this dismissive quality to it. And you see this here in, uh, in verse 22 where he says, But I say to you, any, uh, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to hellfire. Okay, and you see that word there where he says, whoever insults his brother. Actually, in Greek, that's an actual name that you call someone. It's raka. And raka means that when you say to someone, you know, it's basically saying you're stupid. Uh, you're, you're an airhead. You have no value. You have nothing to contribute to this conversation. You have no value uh, to, you know, you shouldn't even open your mouth. <laughs> And, um, and what Jesus says is that uh, there is this dismissive nature to it. It is a statement of contempt. Contempt for what people have to offer to the world. 
And uh, any value that a person has, and this is, can be a very subtle thing, right? Because, um, I mean, that's essentially a way of saying you die. You have nothing to offer. You don't even need to be here. And I mean, that can be a very subtle thing. Actually, I remember, uh, it was probably 10 years ago, I was hanging out with my wife and uh, a couple of my closest friends. And somehow this conversation turned where someone said, oh, you know when Nate gives that look? And I was like, oh, the look, I hate the look. And I'm sitting there like, what look are you talking about? And they're like, oh, yeah, I know the look. And it's the look of uh, you are a complete idiot. And I I was completely, I didn't even know that I had this look. But um, here are the closest people to me to say, oh, yeah, when when, uh, you think we're wrong about something. You have this dismissive that you, you, you have nothing to contribute. And the emotion that it brought up in, in the closest people, they say, oh, I hate that. And they all instantly knew what it was. They instantly knew what it was. And this dismissiveness of anger, it can be extremely subtle. And for many of you, I know that many of you have grown up in settings like that, that contempt. You, why are you opening your mouth? You, you, have, you have nothing to contribute to this. And if you live in that environment, you live in a context, maybe even a workplace like that, you live in a home, you, you live with a spouse, you live with parents like that, that will pound you down, pound you down, and it will make the rest of your life very hard for you to be yourself. It has a you-die quality to it. That's the power of anger, and that's what uh, Jesus is trying to, uh, actually the Latin root for anger is to strangle. That contempt strangles the life and the value that people have to give to the world out of them. And so um, how we use our words, how we speak in Jesus' eyes, these are not just a weakness. You know, that, oh, I'm angry, I get angry at people, I get short people. It's not just a weakness, it's not just a shortcoming. It is something that is deeply offensive. It's not just a mistake that we make. It's something that's deeply offensive to God. But... I don't think that Jesus intends that we're just going to be kind of emotionless robots, that we don't, you know, have emotional responses to things. And the third, because this is the third thing that he says about anger, is not just that it's murderous and that it's dismissive, but also that anger is progressive. Anger is progressive. And what I mean by that, um, now look at verse 22 again, where he says, anyone who is angry with a brother, now, I don't mean to get too into Greek and all that, but one of the things that you don't, catch in English here is that this is what's called a progressive present, which, which means that what he's saying is it's not that you get angry. It's that you're progressively angry. You're continually angry, that you hold grudges. You hold on to your anger, um, that there's a sense of resentment, that when uh, you're angry with someone, you nurse that anger. You water it, you care for it, and you hold on to it. And so uh, Graham Tomlin, he, he wrote a book on the seven deadly sins. This is how he describes um, what Jesus is saying here. The real or imagined slight, you know, when someone does something wrong to us, <clears throat> that slight is mulled over, dwelt on, thought about, turned over in the mind. <clears throat> As it grows, it is caressed nurtured, fed, and watered until it becomes all-consuming. So the kind of anger that Jesus is talking about is not just that you, he's saying you shouldn't get angry. He's saying you are going to get angry. Actually, Paul says, be angry and do not sin. You're, that's, angry is, a, is, a, is an emotion you're going to feel, but it's what you do with that anger, and do you nurse it? Do you grow it? Is it your little precious that you love, that you get pleasure from, that you love that resentment? And... Uh, and he, he says that what you're doing is that when you have resentment towards someone, anger towards someone, and you nurse it and you grow it and you water it, it's like a murder tree. 
that you were growing inside of yourself. You know, it's like, uh, remember that little shop of horrors where um, it's this little plant shop, that, uh, that, that musical about the little plant shop where it's not doing very well and they get this strange plant um, that everyone wants to come and see and it's helping the, the, the shop get back together, but it turns out that uh, this plant lives on human blood. And so uh, Seymour, the guy who's got the plant, he's got, you know, he, he lets it suck on his fingers and he's got band-aids all over his fingers because he's letting it suck. And then, and, and then as the, the plant grows, it becomes more and more hungry for human blood until he has to finally murder someone and chop him up and feed him to the plant. The, uh, this, is, oh, this is what, sorry, was that graphic? The, uh, <laughs> too much for the kids. Okay, erase from your mind. Okay, um, What's happening inside of us is that when we have resentment and we're feeding it, we're letting something like that grow inside of us. And uh, what Tomlin goes on to say, at any stage along this process, it might break out. You know, we think we're just, you know, you know uh, nursing that resentment and that we can hold it in. We can't hold it in. He says, at any stage along the process, it might break out in violence or aggression at others. And they might not even have been the initial instigator of the offense. You carry it around with you, and the people who didn't even, you're not even resentful at it might break out against them. An angry person is a smoldering bonfire of resentment, ready to lash out at anyone who crosses their path or who happens to remind them of the original cause of their hurt. It's, uh, it's something that we're holding in, so it's a progressive anger. And actually, I think uh, Chris Van Hoffigan shared with me an illustration where he's saying, you know, it's kind of like when you, you're at a dinner party. And if you have a, a glass full of wine and someone bumps into you and the, the wine spills on the ground and makes a stain, the reason there's a stain on the ground is not because someone bumped you, right? If they bumped you and you had water in your cup and it overflowed, you know, that fell on the ground, you'd have no problem. It's because there's wine in your glass. And so um, what comes out of you is not because people bumped into you. It's because of what you're holding inside, what's, what's living inside. What is your cup filled with? And if people bump into you and what spills out is, uh, is contempt and rage and wrath, that's what you're, it, is a, it is an ongoing um, resentment that we're holding on to. And that is what Jesus is warning us against. That, um, and uh, what he says here, let me just, these words are piercing. But Jesus says that uh, if 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 we hold on to that kind of anger, you will be liable to hellfire. Liable to hellfire. He says, if, 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 that, if that kind of anger is living on you, you are walking on a path towards hell. Because think of what hell is. What is hell? You're, um, when you have that resentment, you're isolating yourself. You know, you're turning your mind in on yourself. Because, you know, to be a healthy human, healthy human life is not inwardly thinking. It's outward looking. It's um, seeing that God is at work everywhere and enjoying with a thankful heart the people around us and the, the glory of everything that God has made and enjoying those things. It's looking outward. But with resentment, we start turning and looking inward. And we become isolated. And, um, and we become hardened. So that we're not softened to the grace of God. And it's the grace of God that leads us to a thankful spirit, a, a grateful spirit. And ultimately, it leads us to a sense of torment inside us. And it will torment us. And uh, that's why Jesus says, um, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Our experience with God and uh, enjoying God will be directly related 
to how we handle our resentment and, and anger towards other people. Now, why would any of us let get into a life of murderous, <laughs> dismissive, progressive anger? Well, this is the second thing we're going to look at is the reason for anger. And uh, I think Jesus suggests a few reasons why we get angry. And I think the, fir the first is this. We get angry because we desire control. We desire control. And, you know, one of the things, important qualities of anger is um, that when we get angry, there's, you know, there's all kinds of physiological changes that happen to us. You know, your face gets red and uh, your heart rate rises, your blood pressure rises. But also uh, you have, you know, certain uh, um, energy-boosting hormones and adrenaline is released inside of you. And so that uh, actually um, anger... Uh, actually helps your performance in many things. Martin Luther once said this, uh, when I'm angry, I can write, pry, and preach well. For then my whole temperature is quickened, my understanding sharpened, and all mundane vexations and temptations depart. He becomes, uh, you know, piercing. You know, some of us, we become very quick-witted. We become very uh, uh, thoughtful. We can think through things very carefully. And so anger actually helps us to perform well. And just this week, I was, Shannon and I were playing tennis and uh, she's fairly competitive. We're both fairly competitive. And so the first set, Shannon won. And she said that it was clear at the beginning of the second set that she could feel in my serve that the wrath of uh, losing the first set was coming out in how I was. It was a whole new level of serving. It was, it was the anger was, you know, increasing my performance. And so what anger does, anger gives us power is it releases these hormones, releases this adrenaline, it gives us a sense of power. And when we feel that sense of power, it gives us also, then we feel like we can be in control. And that's why for many of us, I, I know for me, you know, having, uh, having a family, having children is times when you see new anger in yourselves that you never saw before is because you feel out of control. And how can I get things under control is because, uh, because anger... Um, offers us, it gives us the illusion that we can control things with our power. And so, um, but a healthy life is not one in which we feel in control. A healthy life is one where we live in obedience to God by trusting that he is in control. And so when we live in this anger, we're actually, we're, we're not living in, in, in a, a trustful relationship with God. But I think that Jesus also highlights a deeper reason for why we get angry. Not just that we desire control, but second, because we want to deflect shame. We want to deflect shame uh, f from us. We get angry when our souls feel threatened by shame. When you feel shame, um, that's going to lead you uh, to show contempt for other people. And uh, follow me here. I, it's very interesting, but I think that that's some of what Jesus is getting at in this passage. Look at verse 22. Okay, So he says, but, uh, but everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to hellfire. And so you think, okay, here's this guy who's really angry with his brother. And you'd think that he's angry at his brother because the brother did something wrong to him, right? But then uh, Jesus says, okay, this is what the other side of anger is. And look at the, listen to this scene that he describes. He says, verse 23, So if you are offering your gift at the altar and therefore remember that your brother has something against you, your brother has something against you, 
You thought he was angry because you had something against your brother, but it turns out that your brother has, you've done something to wrong your brother. And you're getting angry because of something that you've done wrong, not because of something that he's done wrong. And um, what Jesus seems to think is that we are more susceptible to anger when we know that we have done something wrong. When we feel a sense of shame about our life, that is going to lead us more to anger than when, you know, of course, when other people do things wrong to us, we get angry about that as well. But also, when we are carrying around, uh, you know, a sense of shame, um, it will spill out and towards contempt with people. And, you know, I've, sorry, I've got a, all these little stories. Uh, and I, maybe I've shared this with you, that um, when Shan and I were living in, in St. Louis, uh, this is just a small picture. What do I mean by deflecting shame? We were living in St. Louis. We went to Costco, and, uh, you know, we, at that time we had two or three young kids, and they were kind of running everywhere at Costco, and we are trying to get our stuff. And we get to the, the line. You know, it's fairly, when you're walking through Costco, it's kind of easy to keep them together. But when you get in line, it's like, okay, we just got to stay in line and wait here. It's kind of the hardest part to, you know, corral the kids. And so we're staying there, and Shannon says, oh, I forgot to get toilet paper. I need to go get, I need to go get some toilet paper. And I say, uh, you know, you, what did I say? Gosh, I'm totally forgetting the story. <laughs> the, uh, so she goes and she gets the toilet paper and she comes back. <clears throat> oh, no, no, no. I, I, I say, you know, why did, why did you forget the toilet paper? I mean, you just want to leave me here with these kids. You want to leave me? And I have to corral these kids by myself in the line. You know, I'm kind of whining, complaining. And I'm like, why, why, you just want to leave me here. You, you, you know, you want to be off. And she says, well, I, I forgot the toilet paper. You know, what do you want me to do? Not get toilet paper because, uh, because you're upset and you don't want to wait with the kids in the line? And so in that moment, I feel this pang of shame. I say, okay, wow, she's completely exposed how selfish I am and that I can't even wait in line with kids for three minutes while she gets the toilet paper. So what do I do with the shame? Do I say, yeah, you're right. Sorry, that was stupid. No, no way. <laughs> I say, you forgot the toilet paper on purpose. So that you could go get snacks while I'm in the line. And I'm, gonna, I'm coming after you. You want to go get more samples while I have to watch the kids. This shame led me to say something so foolish and, and to throw contempt on her and to accuse her intentions that she's lying about that she purposely didn't get the toilet paper. And this is just now, just imagine, this is a small little pang of shame that I'm feeling over a little. Now, imagine that we feel shame in many areas of our life. Maybe we have all kinds of experiences from our youth people shamed us. Maybe we have deep sins in our life that we're ashamed of. And we're carrying around that shame. We are going to be deflecting that shame all over the place into people. And that we cannot address anger until we... This is the reason. It's because of our own, our own shame. It's not because of what someone else has done, but our own sense of what we've done wrong. And that leads to a third reason for anger is that we... Uh, we are angry because we demand to be righteous. We demand to be in the right, and that's why we're going to get angry when we're not. And anger always has a flavor of righteous indignation to it. And, um, and this is what uh, makes anger so incredibly dangerous and deceptive is because anger in and of itself is not a bad thing, right? I mean, the Bible, who's the most angry person in the Bible? God. <laughs> 
okay? He's, anger is a good thing because, uh, because when you love something, you get angry when that, that thing is in harm. So God created humanity, created the earth, and when humans are warring against each other, hurting one another all over the place, God is going to get angry because he loves humanity. He loves us. And so that's the appropriate response. If you have a child who's in harm or, or is living a, a destructive lifestyle, you're going to get angry because you love them. And if, in fact, that, you know, in the, in the kind of Garden of Eden story, um, here's, uh, Adam should have been angry. There's this serpent who's lying about God and, and you know, tricking, uh, tricking Eve. He should have taken his, you know, machete or whatever he was doing the garden with. He should have chopped the serpent's head off. He should have been angry. There should have been rage. And we even see that with Jesus. You know, the money changers in the temples. He comes and he starts tossing tables over because anger is in and of itself a good thing. But we have to be we have to watch out. Because if you allow yourself that, you say, well, anger is a good thing. Every time you get angry, you are going to say, well, this is righteous anger. I'm just getting angry at something that was done wrong to me. And, um, and the thing is that anger, though, requires a precision to it. Right, because um, what happens, you know what I'm saying, you, have this, you get angry and you have this physiological things, you know, your face is getting red, you got adrenaline rushing through your body, you have all this power. And the fact is, you shouldn't be angry at everything, there should be some small thing that you should be angry with. You know, if, if, if you have a child who's, uh, you know, being mean-spirited, is being disobedient or something, you want to be angry at the disobedience, but you don't want to be angry at the child as a whole and who they are. So this power that you have needs to be aimed just at that little thing, and yet, and yet, you have uh, this hormones and adrenaline running through you. You know, what do we say when people get angry? We say that they're getting mad. They're filled with madness. They're going crazy. And so you don't have the precision uh, to hit the mark that you need to hit. And yet we tell ourselves that this is righteous anger. I have rightly been wronged. I have a right to be angry. And that is a terribly dangerous thing to start thinking that this is righteous anger. And, uh, and Dan Allender, who's a, a Christian psychologist, he makes this observation. Those who are good at other-centered contempt are perceptive and usually accurate in their analysis of wrong. Those who are good at other-centered contempt are perceptive and usually accurate in their analysis of wrong. The kind of anger that Jesus is calling us not to be is a kind of anger where you probably do find something wrong in other people and you do have a reason to be. There is something about them and uh, th to be angry about. You're probably right when you see the fault in someone else. And Jesus is saying that we should not be angry. Now, how can you tell the difference? How do I know whether it's righteous anger or this unrighteous anger that Jesus said is murderous? How can I tell the difference? Well... The difference comes is that righteous anger is always an act of love. And, uh, and Jesus says that we are supposed to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind and love our neighbor as ourself. And so the question is, when you're getting angry, whose honor are you defending? Are you defending the honor of God because God has been offended and because you want God to be glorified? Or are you defending the honor and dignity of other people, of your neighbor? You know, I mean, you look at the things. What are the things that enrage us most? It's more when people slight us and uh, take down our honor than, you know, people could be starving and oppressed in other countries, and we don't have an ounce of anger about that. We, you know, say, gosh, that's unfortunate. But someone cut me off on the road? That will get my face red. The, uh, you know, the, um, it's because my, and so the question is, 
when we are defending our own honor, this is not righteous anger out of love. Okay? And so, Aristotle said, everyone can become angry. That is easy. But to be angry with the right person to the right degree at the right time for the right purpose and in the right way, this is not easy. And so uh, what I want to look at third, we've seen the reality of anger, the reasons for anger. But what is the remedy for anger? And I have a a couple things to say because Jesus offers in this passage two scenarios about avoiding anger, right? He tells this one story. If you're at the altar, you're worshiping, you're at the altar and it comes into your head, oh, someone has something against me. You should leave your gift at the altar, go be reconciled to your brother, and then go offer your gift to God. And then he says another scenario, that's kind of a worship setting. There's another legal setting where he says, you know, if you're on your way to court and uh, you should, uh, you know, kind of make things right with your accuser quickly before you get to court, and otherwise you're going to get to court and they're gonna, the judge is going to judge you, he's going to hand you over to the guard and the guard's going to throw you in jail and you're going to pay every last penny. So he gives these two little scenarios. And I think in these t- scenarios, Jesus uh, gives us both a little step to help us with anger and a little gospel hidden in there. A little step and a little gospel. And what I mean by a little step is that, first of all, is that um, in, you know, Jesus has these commands where he says, you know, you've heard it said of old that you shall not murder. But I say to you, even if you're angry with the brother, you're liable to judgment. He has these five commands that we're going to be looking at over the, last few, few, over the next few weeks. And in all of these commands, Jesus is setting a very high bar for the life that he is envisioning for his disciples. It's an extremely high bar. You know, all of us, we read this, you say, if you're angry, you've committed murder. I mean, who can do that? None of us, none of us can meet that bar. And yet, to, to communicate to us that he wants to develop that in us, he wants to grow that in us, he gives us these small, maybe they're small, I don't know how small they are, uh, steps of obedience, which, um, as a way forward, a first step in this vision of life, this vision of a community, And I think that it's kind of captured in verse 25 where he says, come to terms quickly with your accuser. Come to terms quickly with your accuser. And what he's going after is this thing of that anger is progressive, that it's going to grow in us, it's going to nurse it. He's saying, don't let resentment grow and continue. You need to stop it. So this is what Paul says in in Ephesians 4. He says, be angry and do not sin, right? So Paul says, listen, you're going to get angry. People are going to do things that make you mad, but... Be angry and do not sin. And he goes on to say, do not let the sun go down on your anger. This little bit of wisdom, this little uh, pearl of, of keeping us from anger, don't let it persist. And, and I think that's a helpful thing. You know, don't let, the, don't let it uh, um, uh, continue. And, and one of the things that this says is that if the anger is destroying your life, if you see that anger is in your life, it's in your marriage, it's uh, um, d- destructive in some ways, the first thing that you need to do is you need to look at it and see that that anger is there. And then the question is, does anyone know about that? Are you kind of going through life kind of haphazardly hoping, you know, I hope it will eventually get better, or have you looked at it? I mean, that's what he's saying. Address it. Address it immediately. And maybe you need to bring someone else into it. You need to confess it to someone in this community. If it's in a marriage, if you have anger in your marriage, do only you and your spouse know about it? Does anyone else know about it? Have you brought in uh, elders in our church or a counselor or people in your home group, people that you trust, wise counsel? Bring them in and say, we need help with this. And, uh, you know, another thing... Something that's become, that's fairly common 
you know, maybe over the last, I don't know how, how, you know, few decades, is this idea that one of the ways to deal with anger is that it's basically this pressure valve that just needs to be let out. And, you know, so, you know, you need to find some way to just vent. And, and then you'll feel a sense of relief if you let that out. You know, get a pillow and hit the pillow and, uh, or, you know, just yell at the top of your lungs or something like that. The reality is that will not help your anger. What you're doing when you do that, even though you feel a sense of relief, you're actually training your body. You're training your body. You're training your mind to just let anger flow out. And it's, you know, it's, it's very similar with lust. You know, if, if you gratify lust, um, you feel kind of relieved of the tension after, you know. But, uh, but it, all you've done is you've taught your body to, that, that lust and, and um, gratifying lust is a more natural thing to do. And it becomes more and more natural to do that. So what has to happen for us is we have to, we have to stop anger. We have to um, um, uh, practice reconciliation. And, um, and the reason for this is because Jesus says that our whole life is actually about reconciliation, our whole spiritual life. Our whole relationship with God is about reconciliation. If you look again at verse 25, what does this sound like? Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. These are the words of Jesus. And the reality is that for all of us, we are on a path where we are walking towards, uh, the Bible says over and over again that we will stand before God and we'll give an account for our life, that we'll be judged. And right now we're in this time where God is saying, make peace with me. Come, you know, all of God's demands. We read this demand of Jesus that you should not murder, and we see we don't even come close to it. We don't, Jesus, we can't meet that. I, my life is filled with anger. It's, it's happened all over my life. How will I ever stand before you if this is your requirement? And God has sent Jesus as an offer to say, be reconciled. I want to forgive you. I want to show you grace. And, um, and so that this is our whole life, and so that here within this little step is also, you know, maybe I should say a little gospel or, or a big gospel. There's a big gospel hidden in these steps. Because um, even though this little step, you know, go, uh, uh, don't let the sun go down on your anger, you know, uh, stop the, the, the resentment, do something about it, go and address it, look at it. On some ways, that will address what's on the surface, what we're dealing with on, us on the surface. But does that deal with our desire for control? Our, the, the deflection of our shame? Does it deal with our shame? Uh, does it deal with our, our need to prove that we're righteous? Does it deal with any of those things that are way down inside of us? And Jesus knows that something deeper needs to happen in us. And um, if you look again at verse 23, Jesus gives this picture where he says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar, which he says he's painting this picture of someone who's in worship, they're with God, they're in the temple, they're in God's presence, they're communing with God, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. What Jesus is asking of us here is nothing more than what he's already done for us. Because look at this picture. What is, where was Jesus? Jesus is, is the second person of the Trinity. He's God's son. He was in God's presence. He was worshiping and serving at the heavenly altar um, before the world was made. And he was in God's presence. And then he remembered us. He remembered that we're mad at God. 
And we're unjustly mad at God. We're angry at God. We think God is evil and that we want to run our own life because God, because God is not good. And what did he do? He remembered that, that, that we had accusations against God and he came to us. He left the altar. He left God's presence and he came after us. And when he came here, what did we do with him? We let all of our anger just pile on top of him. We ripped him apart and we murdered him. And yet he conquered our anger. He rose again. He conquered our anger not by fighting with us, but by absorbing our anger. And then when he was raised again he, uh, he, uh, to new life, he said, come and be, come into the presence of my father. Come and live with my father. Come and live with God. This great invitation of love. And what does that do? When he's done that for us, I say, I don't need to be in control of my life because Jesus is in control of my life. And I don't, I don't need shame. He's taken my shame on the cross. And he wasn't ashamed of me. And he says, come in, into the presence of my Father and come live with me. And I will be with you. And I'll pour myself. I'll give you my spirit. And I don't need to prove myself righteous anymore because he is my righteousness. He's clothed me with his righteousness. And it's the gospel that gets to the core of the heart issue behind our anger. So there's a little step of obedience that Jesus gives us. But more profoundly, Jesus gives us the gospel that softens our hearts to take the risk of letting go of our resentment and to trust God. Let's pray together. Our Lord, may these words expose us. May they lead us to confession, to repentance, to humility. And we admit to you uh, that anger lives in all of our hearts and it, it doesn't stay there. It comes out in our words, in our looks, in our actions. And yet we thank you that Jesus invites angry people to himself and gives them uh, the hope that they can be transformed in him. So we look to these words not to